0: through those pearly gates, and that's because Jesus purchased our redemption. Nothing that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning as we turn to James chapter number two. James chapter number two. We have been working our way through this chapter, and we spent some time in the first section of chapter two. We will now come to verses 10 through 13 this morning, and we will look at being judged by The law of liberty, being judged by the law of liberty. We find that phrase there in verse number 12. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That seems like a contradiction of terms, law and liberty. That seems, especially in our day and age, where it's all this talk about freedom and all this talk about liberty and us getting to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it, and all that. This idea of law seems to be a contradiction to liberty. And we have a aversion to law. We have an aversion by our sin nature. We are naturally rebellious. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. And some people you've met... If there's a sign on the door that says, do not enter, you know how it is. There's always somebody who wants to open that door. Oh, there must be a reason. There must be some reason. They're keeping me out. There's a aversion to law. There's aversion and aversion by our sin nature. We are naturally rebellious and want to kick against the prick, so to speak. But we have in the word of God... By God's inspiration, by the preservation of his word, we have the law of liberty. And we'll talk about three principles regarding that law of liberty this morning. But I want to remind us and kind of review as we again set the context for this passage. James, in the previous paragraph, has given us a warning regarding partiality. Partiality is a real problem in our culture today. We refer to it as prejudice or bias, or sometimes the word discrimination comes up. In in specific context, in James chapter 2, James gives us a warning, an order, an injunction from the Lord, and he gives an illustration. And he deals with the fact that the rich and the famous were being given preferential treatment. Even within the church, the very people that had oppressed them, that had abused them, that had blasphemed their God, in some cases had persecuted them, they are giving them the preferential treatment. Meanwhile, the poor are dishonored, they are shamed, they're being told to sit on the dirt floor at the footstool, they're given the, the worst seats in a sense in the church. The poor are dishonored, they're shamed, yet many of them are the genuine believers that are rich in faith, they're heirs of God's kingdom, as we looked at last week. And we are rebuked when we are guilty of the same kind of partiality. We give honor to the wealthy, to the famous, even to the point of idolatry. I read an article even this week on Fox News from a secular perspective Why? What is wrong with us that we are so idolatrous of certain rich and famous people? From a totally secular perspective, they were trying to figure out why we treat certain people like gods and goddesses. Why we hold them up in such high esteem and basically reverence them to the point of idolatry. And we'll do that, and yet we have little time for God. Little respect for God, for his word, and for his people, the church. We will have our priorities all out of whack. And James says that this partiality is a sin. It's something that does not typically get categorized as a major sin. Yet James says this is a sin because it is a violation of the law of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it is enough of a sin. It is a violation of God's law. So therefore, it condemns us before a holy God. So today, we will look at three principles concerning this law of liberty and how it relates to this sin of partiality. First of all, we see this morning that the law of liberty is a law of love. The law of liberty is a law of love. Verse number 10 of James 2, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Again, the standard, the law, the decree of God that is being violated in the sin of partiality, of respect of persons, of favoritism, Bias, discrimination, whatever you want to call it, this is a violation of Leviticus 19 in verse 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And in Matthew 5 in verse 44, Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not only to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're to love our enemies. This is a royal law. This is the royal law. We see in verse number 8 of James 2, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. It is a royal law because it is a decree from the king of kings. It is a law from the righteous, holy king of kings and lord of lords. It holds the authority of God himself in loving our neighbors. We're already in love with ourselves. We have no trouble loving ourselves. I know that there's all this talk out there about self-care and self-help and self-image and self-esteem. And I understand there's a certain level of that that is good and and wholesome and helpful. And there's a certain amount of confidence that we want our kids to have growing up to go out and to do this or do that. And we don't want them to just be walking around with their, their heads down and having no confidence in the abilities that God has given them. I understand there's a degree of that that is innocent, wholesome, helpful. But we have gone way too far in our culture with this whole self-care, self-help, self-esteem movement to the point that kids, parents are, are raising their kids as if their kids never do anything wrong. As if they can get away with anything because my child would never do that. And that's the wrong idea of this whole self-love and self-care. That is pushing it way too much to the extreme. While we want our kids to have some confidence, we want them to use the abilities and the talents that God has given them. If we never teach them right from wrong, how are they ever going to understand that they're sinners? If they never have any consequence for wrong sinful choices, how are they ever going to understand that there is a judgment before God one day? How are they ever going to come to the realization that they are sinners before a holy God and repent of that sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If they grow up thinking that they can never do anything wrong, then they are going to sadly be deceived, self-deceived into thinking there is no God and no authority that can tell them that they are wrong or that they are sinners or that they need to repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Self-care, self-image has been way too overblown in our culture. But nevertheless, we do have this commandment to love our neighbor, to love our enemies. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We love ourselves. We think of ourselves all the time. We put ourselves first. I say it Regularly, I said it last week, I think of myself more than anybody else. That makes me selfish. I have to fight that. I have to fight that on a regular basis. We have to make a conscious choice to think of others. Because we are naturally selfish people. We are to love God first. That's where the love of our neighbor ultimately comes from. As we love God, and that vertical relationship grows and deepens, and we foster that right relationship with God vertically, then the horizontal relationship, the human relationships, the relationships that we have with one another will deepen, will grow, will improve. So again, James is dealing with this knowing and being and doing. And he's talking about hearing the word, and he's talking about being, growing in our character and our integrity and our Christ likeness so that now we are living out this love of others because we love God and we have a right relationship with him and his relationship with us is such that now we are growing in this Christ likeness, this integrity, this character that we can't help then but to love others. That is a byproduct of a right relationship with God, a byproduct of a Christian life, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a natural byproduct of that right relationship with God, is a love for others, including our enemies. As a matter of fact, this was something that the disciples were wrestling with in Luke chapter number 10. Jesus was asked this question Who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus respond with in Luke 10? The parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest walked by. The Levite walked by. Who ultimately helped the Samaritan? Who was considered a half-breed? Who the Jews discriminated against? Who the, the, the Jews showed partiality against? Who was ultimately the one that came along and helped the man on the side of the street? It was the Good Samaritan. It was the Samaritan. Jesus really dealt with their thinking didn't he and teaching us who was our neighbor and getting rid of this respect of persons this partiality this discriminatory attitude this judging people by the externals and treating people based on all of these externals of beauty and wealth and fame And all the different ways in which we divide each other up. Jesus dealt with that in Luke 10 when the Samaritan was the one who helped the man on the side of the road and went above and beyond to make sure he was cared for. What a rebuke to those listeners. What a lesson to his disciples and to us about who our neighbor is. So as we think about loving our neighbors, we think of this law of liberty being a law of love Let's think about Romans chapter number five. If you want to turn there, Romans five and verses five through eight, we read, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Romans five and verse six, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die, but God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where does it begin? Romans five and verse five, Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We then come to verse eight, but God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love for us resulted in an action of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. So our love for God. Results in a love for our neighbor, which results in sacrificial action service. So in James two. He says, but if ye have respect to persons, verse nine, ye commit sin. And are convinced or convicted of the law as transgressors. He's really getting to this point that we don't see sometimes as partiality, as this bias, as this favoritism and respect or persons, this clickishness. We don't see it as that big of a deal. We don't see it as that bad of a sin. I've used these illustrations before, but Being a school principal for many years, I would deal with the cliques and the favoritism and the unkindness and the back and forth that kids would often have with each other. And I've talked about the junior high girls and the junior high boys. And I've talked about the meetings with particularly junior high girls every year where we would have a sit down because there would be a group of junior high girls that would be in a squabble. Pardon me, but cat fight. I don't mean that the wrong way in a derogatory way, but they would be in a squabble. And I remember one year in particular, the girl in tears, bawling her eyes out as I had a group of girls sitting there. She said, you gave a hug to every other girl in our class three weeks ago, except for me, bawling her eyes out. And I had to work on that because then for three weeks there was this disagreement and it just Layer upon layer. And I was having to peel the onion for half an hour and trying to share scripture. It was a difficult thing. And then I would deal with the boys who had the right shoes, who had the certain girl. And then for a while there, it was the scrunchies. The girls would give the boy that they liked a scrunchie and the boys would wear around the scrunchie. And so it became, oh, I, I, have a, I have a girl that likes me. I don't have any scrunchies. You have three scrunchies. All these different ways in which we, we think it's silly. But year after year, I would deal with this, and I would see human nature, and then I would see it even in adults. I would see adults who divide up, and they show respect to persons based on certain lifestyle standards, certain expectations, certain kinds of dress, who you hang out with, where you go on vacation. There are some people that used to be keeping up with the Joneses, now it's keeping up with the Kardashians, sadly, right? And this whole idea of I can outdo, I have to one up. It's so sad, we get into and now we see in our society, we see a tribalism, even among Christians, and it can even affect churches and cause church splits. Sadly, sometimes the number one way that churches are planted is through church splits. Sadly, it shouldn't be that way, but we can get into this tribalism. And Paul deals with this in Romans 13. After all of that doctrine, we get to Romans 13 in verses 8 through 10, and he says, O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law, for this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, the law of liberty. The law of love, biblical love, love that is according to the truth. Book of Third John, as I've mentioned before, John's friendship with Gaius, that friendship was according to the truth. Biblical love, love that is according to the truth, along the principles of First Corinthians 13. This biblical love that is according to the truth frees us from hatred and bitterness. And revenge, it enables us to love God and to obey God's word and to treat people like we should. John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The law of liberty is a law of love that frees us to obey God's word, to treat people like we should so that we are not bound by the sins of bitterness and anger and vengeance and revenge. Bitterness does nothing against the person that we're bitter against. But it's like a cancer that eats us up from the inside. The law of liberty is a law of love. It frees us from all of that bondage of sin, of the bitterness and the anger and this desire for revenge that sometimes just seems to be insatiable. And it just goes on and on, back and forth, tit for tat, and on and on, and slinging mud and inflammatory language. And if if you got me, I'm going to get you worse. I'm going to get you harder. I'm going to get you next. And that's the way our culture lives. That's what we see in sports. That's what we see in so many different areas of life. But the law of liberty is a law of love that frees us from all that sinful bondage. And sadly, once we begin to show partiality, we are willing to break just about any of God's laws. James says, we don't think that much about partiality, respect of persons, favoritism. We don't see it as... As bad as adultery or murder, he mentions in verse 11. But he said, if we offend, if we transgress the law, even in this area, which to us seems so small, so insignificant, then we are a transgressor of the whole law. And if we begin to show partiality, it begins to manifest itself in various ways, and we begin to violate other commandments. Our priorities get all out of order. We let other things come between us and God. And now we're a violator of the first commandment Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We might even lie in order to attain their wealth, to gain their approval. And now we have violated the ninth commandment Thou shalt not bear false witness. It is easy to become covetous of the money, of the rich and the famous, of their wealth and their fame. It's easy to become covetous of their lifestyle, and we we, we can become covetous. And they portray on the screen this wonderful life of happiness, and they can sin without consequence, and they can sin and still be wealthy, and they can sin and have all kinds of supposedly good things. And it seems like they're getting away with it. And it's all on the screen, and that's the life they portray. And oftentimes we find out behind the scenes in their personal life, they're full of addictions, immorality, broken relationships. Just saw another one in the news just in the last day or so. Another Hollywood superstar whose personal life was full of addictions and broken relationships. But portrayed, portrayed a certain image on the big screen, on the TV screen, that people have coveted after. If I could just live that kind of life, if I could just have that kind of carefree, moral type of life, if I could just do all those things and have all those girls or have all those boys and just live however I want and enjoy all of those sins, then I would be happy, I would have joy. And it was a fantasy world. When God calls us to live according to the law of liberty, where there's true freedom, where the truth sets us free, where we have the joy of the Lord, as we covet those people, we find ourselves violating the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And there's a list of what we shouldn't covet, including our neighbor's wife and their cattle, which might mean their wealth and their substance their house on and on it goes there in exodus 20 in the list of the violations in specific ways of the 10th commandments so we can become a violator of at least 3 commandments just in our desire to be like the rich and the famous in our partiality in our favoritism in our respect of persons and once the love of money grabs hold of our hearts The Bible says what? That we're capable of all sorts of evil. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And what does James bring us back to? Again, in James chapter number 2, he says, these rich people that you give all of this attention to, that you set up, that you exalt, that you covet after, they blaspheme our very God. They have been guilty of persecuting you, oppressing you, dragging you off, making false accusations against you in the courts. And he says, you are then violators of the law of God. When you should be living according to the law of liberty, the truth will set us free. So we see this law of liberty as a law of love. But we also see that this law of liberty is a law of instruction. Now, we, we see in verse 11, and actually going back to verse 10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So now he's drawing our attention to the law, the whole of the law, and it's a unit. The whole of God's law, the faith. The faith once delivered to the saints, Jude, verse 1. The whole counsel of God. And he begins to mention these other major, big sins adultery, verse 11, do not kill, murder. He says, if Thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And that seems obvious. Well, sure, if you murder, but you don't commit adultery or you don't commit adultery, or you do commit adultery, but you don't murder, you're still guilty. Those are major sins that just seem very obvious. But he's drawing our attention to the fact that none of us keep the whole law. We focus on the majors. Well, I'm not as bad as and as the world shifts further and further away from God and his word. What do we tend to do? We tend to just kind of shift along with the world and we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as I'm not doing that. When really we should be closer and closer to God. And we should not be stained with the world, as James warns us at the end of chapter one keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. And he's saying, okay, you got this attitude now that, well, I'm not as bad as, at least I'm not a murderer, at least I'm not an adulterer, but you're not loving your neighbor as you should. You're violating the law of God. And he's saying that this law of liberty is a law of instruction. It points us to the truth and it reveals our sinfulness it shows us the righteous, holy standard of God and how we all fall short. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3, verses 24 through 26 refer to the law being a schoolmaster. Galatians 3, in verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. What does the law do? Shows us the standard. Points us to Christ. Points us to the truth. We have rules around our house. That rule is not to, hmm, all right, I just can't wait. Boy, if I just have enough rules around our house, I just can't wait to get Jesse today. I just can't wait till he gets up and I'm just looking. Is that the reason we have the law? Is that the reason we have the rule? No. But the rule points to something. The the, the rule might point to safety. The rule might point to just his own or our kid's own health. It might point to uh, spiritual, ultimately a moral Rule, various rules that do what? They instruct us. They point us to a standard, and when we violate that standard, it reveals our inability to keep that standard, it reveals our sinfulness. The law of God, we can talk about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, all pointed to whom? Christ. And they're ceremonial, I realize, and moral aspects of the law. But the law points... The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, pointed us to Christ. As they went through the sacrificial system, as they kept the Mosaic law, as they went through the feasts, it was all to point them to the Messiah. Now we are on this side looking back, and we see that the Old Testament law and the Mosaic law, we see the symbols, we see the ceremonies, and we see the absolute moral, the moral absolutes of our God. We see those in the law, and they point to Christ, and Christ fulfills the law. And it's ultimately, as we put our faith and trust in Christ, that his righteousness is credited to our accounts. But the point is that the law shows God's standard and our inability to meet that standard. And this law of liberty reveals that, yeah, okay, maybe we don't murder. Yeah, maybe we don't commit adultery. But we still have respectable sins that we need to repent of, that we need to confess. I'm thankful for having gotten saved when I was six years old, lower elementary. But God really did a work on my heart. As I got older and I got into my teenage years and got into Bible college and seminary, and God had to do a real work in my heart. Because there was a real temptation, Christian home, Christian school, Bible college, called to preach. That I find myself thinking I'm above. That I'm exempt. And God had to do a real work in my heart. About this pride that I had built up in my life. And I still fight it to this day. But through a series of circumstances and through God's gracious, merciful work in my heart and the Holy Spirit, I began to realize, especially as I was dealing with young people and seeing the kind of homes that they had come from, and I was beginning to have to deal with confrontation about certain kinds of behaviors and sins, and God was really dealing with me, that I see myself I got saved as a six year old. I got saved in lower elementary and I understood that I was a sinner and that I could only come to heaven, go to heaven through Jesus Christ, through a personal faith and trust in Christ. And I believe I truly repented of my sins and came to saving faith when I was six. We had two people stand up here behind this pulpit with similar testimonies. And I'm so thankful for those testimonies. And we saw even in their testimonies this understanding of their need to trust Christ and thankful for godly parents who helped them see that. And I related to that in so many ways. But what the law of liberty does is it instructs us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and but for the grace of God so go I. And we are in a comparison culture I'm not as bad as. Well, at least I'm not doing that. And in looking at all of the wicked evil, I mean, there is so much perversion and filth, you hate to even turn on the news. There's so much garbage on the Internet. The battle that parents have to face now with all of the access to sin to some of the most filth and filthy sewage that's out there, it's just at the fingertips within a few clicks It's it's disgusting. It's overwhelming sometimes. And it's so important that we bring our life under the submission into submission to the word of God that we see, if not for the grace of God, if we don't walk close to the Lord, if we don't stay faithful in the word, if we don't come to a good Bible preaching church and bring that accountability and covenant together, how quickly we can wander. How quickly we can adopt wicked thinking patterns and get our priorities out of place and we begin to say, Well, at least I'm not killing anybody. At least I haven't committed adultery. And what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, If you hate your brother, you've already had a murderous heart. If you lust after a woman, you already have an adulterous heart. He dealt with the heart. And the law is a law of liberty that has instruction about our sin that points us to Christ and our need to come to him humbly and submit to his law because it frees us from our sin and it frees us from our self-deception and it frees us from our pride and it brings us under God's submission, under his rule and his authority and his lordship, and that is the best place to be, and we humbly come before Him, seeking and desiring His mercy. And it's a reminder that we need to be doers of the word in every area. And that's where James is bringing us to. You may not be a murderer, you may not be an adulterer, but you have this sin: respect to persons, partiality. And that alone condemns us before a holy God. That alone, that one chink, that one, excuse me, that one link in the chain, if that one link is broken, it breaks the whole chain. If we take a hammer and we hit the glass, do we say when that spider crack and that crack goes throughout the glass, do we say, oh, it's just a little spot? It's just a little, no, we say the window is broken. The whole thing is broken. We've had to re- have our windshield replaced twice now in the last three weeks <laughs> with uh, rocks that have cracked our windshield and had to have safe light come out a couple times and we went over to the safe light. And I, didn't, I didn't go to him and, and say, well, I just have this little spot. Can, can, you, can you just fix the little spot of windshield? No, I say can you fix the windshield? The whole thing, the whole thing was compromised. And I understand, I understand that not every sin has the same level of depravity, but only one sin is all it takes before a holy God to condemn us, to break the whole law. At the same time, we understand that a speeding ticket going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit is not the same as a mass murder Or committing adultery. But they are still all a violation of the law of God that condemns us before God. But we understand that there is a level of depravity in certain sins. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 reminds us, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Proverbs 6, six sins does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. We understand that certain sins have a certain depraving effect, a damaging effect, have a certain damage that they do, and a consequence. Speeding five miles, ten miles an hour over the limit may be inconsequential until that causes us to hit somebody because we're going too fast, cause some sort of accident, not be able to brake and run into the back of somebody's car, not realize what's going on around us and we hit somebody that's trying to cross the street. I understand in Indianapolis that pedestrian, that accidents involving pedestrians has gone up over 20% in the last year because so many people are out on the streets. Speeding can be severely consequential. But we have all of these sins that we look at and we begin to exempt ourselves. And there's no length that we will go to. I mean, there is no end, I should say. There is no end to the length of the excuses that we will make to rationalize our sin. And that's what James is ultimately dealing with us about. That we not exempt ourselves from sin that we not rationalize and spiritualize our sin. Sin is like a cancer that begins to eat away at our flesh, that eats away at our spirits. Sin is like a cancer that, if you've ever had cancer, you know even just one or two cells, just a few cells, can cause that cancer to spread, to come back, to uh, Masticize, or I forget the different terminologies that are used. We don't want one cell of that cancer to remain. But we have sin cells in our lives that we, we say, well, it's no big deal. I can handle that. I have it under control. I'll never go there. I'll never do that. And sin has such a deceiving, depraving damaging, doling, catastrophic effect on our life. That we must come again under the law of liberty and be instructed to see sin as what it is before a holy God. So that we do not continue in those same sins, but that we have a repentant life so that we are not just hearers, but that we are doers. That our faith is lived out in holiness In full obedience to the law of God. So the law of liberty is a law of love. The law of liberty is a law of instruction. In the few minutes that we have left, I want us to see thirdly that the law of liberty is a law of mercy. It is a law of mercy. Verses 12 and 13. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. It is because of Christ's atoning work that God can show mercy on us. And he desires to show mercy. He desires. He's a merciful God. He desires to show mercy. Titus chapter number two. Titus 2, we know this passage, but verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We see the heart of God. We see this desire of God to, to, to show his grace, to demonstrate his grace. Grace is God doing to us what we don't deserve, giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So he mentions grace in Titus two eleven. Hath appear, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We see that God's desire is for us, to live under his grace and under his mercy and to develop this Christ-likeness, this godliness, this personal holiness. And he began in Titus 2, back in verses 3 through 7, where he says, and I got, it, I got the, the, the passage wrong, I just realized that. I have the, the, wrong, the wrong passage here, and I apologize uh, that I put the wrong text in my, in my notes, but he, he talks about that we're, we're, we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He talks about the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, and then we live under that mercy. We live under that mercy of God. It is what we live daily to love, to honor, to realize, to appreciate. That we have received God's grace and that we live under his mercy. What we deserve is hell. What we deserve. The law tells us what? That we have violated God's moral law. We have violated his standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is the transgression of the law. And so what does the law tell us? That we are condemned. We're guilty. But the law of liberty points us to the mercy of God. And it is according to his mercy that he saved us. And now we live in light of that mercy each and every day. The word of God in verses 12 and 13, this law of liberty of James chapter number two. We see in verse 12 shall be judged by the law of liberty. We see in verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy. What is what is being talked about here? This is talking about how a person who has never been saved, who has never received God's mercy through repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus Christ, they have not then received God's mercy because they have not trusted Christ as their savior. They have not turned from their sin. They have not come to Christ in saving faith, saying, I need your mercy. That's where it begins in Matthew 5, the poverty of spirit, the mourning, so that we can then, blessed be the merciful, because they have received the mercy of God through repentance and faith. Realizing that they need the mercy of God for their salvation. At that point, then we see here in verse 12, they are judged by the law of liberty for he shall have judgment without mercy. So the person who has rejected the mercy of God shall be judged by the standard of God's word that says, because you have not come in repentance and faith, you have not looked to God for mercy Now the law of liberty becomes a judge that shows no mercy. So God doesn't send anybody to hell when we really think about it. We go there on our own by our rejection of God's grace and mercy. And it's that standard of God's word, of his holiness and his word, the law of liberty, reveals the mercy of God. But when that is rejected, that law, that standard has no mercy. It brings judgment. And that is what James is ultimately bringing us to. That we need to live in the light of that mercy. That we be a doer of the word. So that means that we have to live a merciful life, having received the mercy of God... We then must live out that mercy. It needs to be in action so that we are expressing a forgiving spirit, that we are willing to forgive and to ask for forgiveness, that we are willing to give people the benefit of the doubts and not thinking the worst of others. Part of this critical theory mood that we are in right now in our culture is that if you don't agree with me in every way, if you don't accept my self-identification, then you are immediately the enemy. You are the bad, and I am the good. And therefore, you are in your group, and I am in my group, and we cannot ever see each other. And that's creeping into the church. And so now, once we have determined that somebody is not in agreement with us, they are the enemy. And we can only think the worst of them. And then we're not living the merciful life that James is calling us to. The merciful life means speaking the truth in love. It doesn't mean endorsing, overlooking, or excusing sin. It may mean caring enough about someone to confront them regarding their sin or unwise choice. It may mean sharing the gospel with them so that they can call out to Christ in repentance and faith and receive his mercy. The law of liberty frees us to love one another And to demonstrate mercy. And to give this message of mercy to others. And that's the kind of life that God wants us to have. So that mercy will do what? In verse 13. Rejoice. Triumph over judgment. God desires. If you're here this morning and have not received Christ as your Savior. God desires to show you mercy. But you must Come to him in saving faith and repentance of our sin. And then as believers who have received God's mercy, we're to live that out. We're to be a merciful people. We're to be forgiving. We're to have that forgiving spirit. But we are to speak the truth in love and we are to give the gospel, which is the gospel of mercy. And we're to have that kind of love for one another that we're not showing respect to persons, that we're not showing partiality. The law of liberty, it's a law of love, it's a law of instruction, and it's a law of mercy. May we live that out. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us as we think about the law of liberty that frees us from sin and frees us to serve you and to love others the way that you loved us. Lord, may mercy triumph over judgment as, Lord, we see your mercy. And we extend that to others, ultimately in giving them the truth and giving them the gospel. But then also, Lord, in edifying one another and loving one another according to the truth, that we be forgiving as you have forgiven us, that, Lord, we extend forgiveness and we ask for forgiveness when we have wronged others, that, Lord, we have a merciful life that demonstrates the love of God, that instructs us in the ways of God, And points us to the word of God. And that, Lord, this merciful life will ultimately point people to the Savior. Lord, I pray that you will help each of us to once again be renewed in our appreciation for your mercy. That is new every morning. Because it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And, Lord, may we have that kind of attitude and appreciation for your grace and your mercy each and every day. Pray that you do your work, even our hearts, as we close with this song, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn in our hymn books as Jake comes and leads us in our closing hymn. four hundred and twenty-nine.